What's going on, guys? Michael here, Energy 360 Podcast by Intercom. Excited to be able to announce to you guys this new interview that me and Stuart Turner, who's director and publisher of Oilink, SB60.com, were able to sit down with Heidi McCullough, who we've had on the podcast, who's director and publisher of the best YouTube show, uh, A Stranded Nation, and Terry Edom, who is a contributing author for, and writer for the BOE Report, and is also the author of the really, really solid book, The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity. Guys, they are, Heidi and Terry are Canadian energy experts. We love talking with them. They're really experts in energy policy and how that relates to uh, Canadians and how that is rolled out. We chat sort of the differences and really we dove into pipelines this um, episode. We really talked about really the pipeline implications rolling out, what that means for it, and really touched on some of the biggest stuff, which is education. Guys, this was the funnest interview I was a part of, so I'm not even going to spoil it anymore. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Stu and kick this one off. Hey, good morning, everybody. We sure are glad to have Terry, and we've got Heidi, and we've got Michael here. Welcome, guys. This should be a fun little roundtable. Thanks. Nice to have you. Super right. excited. Hey, uh, uh, Heidi, we really appreciate you uh, before on our interview that we had with you on uh, Stranded Nation. That was an outstanding uh, movie, and thank you for your pr uh, past uh, interview with us and we sure appreciate it got a lot of traction yeah we were oh, just talking about that it's i think like one of the highest rated ones well that's amazing honestly we had so much fun though i think that was pretty transparent when i watched it back and when my mom watched it too she was like oh my god that was such a good little interview you did <laughs> it's like it was just fun mom <laughs> my mom is my harshest critic she will email me after every show and be like not your best work <laughs> <laughs> my mom's opposite she just thinks everything I do is like perfect. Uh, well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And Terry, you're an author, and uh, we just really appreciate your uh, sense of humor and your leadership in the oil and gas space. And your book, oh. The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity, um, started, and you and I are hopefully going to get to do an interview on it uh, later on. But I really yep. like the sense of humor. So, oh, good. Uh, thank you. Try and make it interesting. It's a, it's a tough topic to sell to people at the best of times. So, uh, yeah, try, try and throw some stuff in there to keep the readers turning the page. So. Um, or make them mad, whichever comes first. So. <laughs> you know, Terry, uh, the other day you wrote an outstanding article. And uh, the article uh, showed up on BOE Report. And it's the end of infrastructure. And Canada and the U.S. are having these things right now where there's lawsuits and pipelines are not getting built. And uh, Heidi and, and uh, Michael and I talked about the importance of Canada and the U.S. being good neighbors and selling to each other. Uh, Terry, can you kind of go over your thoughts on this article on the end of the infrastructure? Sure. Well, and, and to, to start with your, your last point first, um, I, a lot of people, even in Canada, I don't think realize how integrated the North American energy market is. We we ship a lot of our oil and natural gas right into the United States. A lot of a lot of U.S. production goes straight up into Canada as well. In Eastern Canada, it really is like a it's like there's not even a border, except when the regulatory bodies get involved, of course. But as far as the the flow back and forth, it, it it's it's quite wide open, and it, it is a wildly mutually beneficial relationship that we can uh, move our product to the United States and the United States can do same 
we're, we're very integrated that way. So, and infrastructure is um, critical to that. And for a long time, we've had no issues with, with building pipelines and the, um, both, both in Canada and the United States for decades, it was it, actually there's governments for a long time that insisted that we build infrastructure, build pipelines. Our first pipeline out east in Canada and our first one to the coast, to the west coast, were both uh, mandated by governments who wanted to uh, open up new markets for petroleum. And now obviously we know that's all turned on its head and we have trouble um, uh, getting anything built. In Canada, it's been, we've been going through this for a while now. We've been kind of feeling singled out, I suppose, right, Heidi? That might be a good word for it, that, that um, Canada's have had trouble building infrastructure when the rest of the world hasn't. We used to look south across the border and see hundreds of miles of pipe being built for oil and natural gas and NGLs and whatever. And we we're just like, wow, we would love any one of those, <laughs> but we couldn't get it done. And now it seems like the same thing has struck the United States. So that, that's one of the reasons I wrote the article is that this isn't just a Canadian thing anymore. That this is, um, it's turning into a bigger deal. So. And I think one of the, one of the things you pointed out is that it's not necessarily even a regulatory thing. I mean, specifically with this Dominion Energy canceling of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, they had, as you mentioned, in their back pocket, a seven to two ruling that basically allowed them to continue building this product. It was a project. It was all of the other stuff that goes on with it that sort of debunked this whole thing. Right. They would spend a lot of money on it already and they're way down the road and they just look at the road ahead and go, this just isn't worth it. And then you look at the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is, that just boggled my mind that a, a judge could come out of the woodwork and shut down a pipeline that's been in operation for three years, which runs parallel to two other pipelines and say, this is not safe. Like, how, how does that happen? Uh, I understand the regulatory process and I could even understand there's some people out there making strong arguments that they um, they didn't uh, do a proper environmental impact assessment that, that explored all the avenues. And I could, even if, you, if that was true, you could say, well, maybe you find them or something, but to shut, shut in a pipeline, it's just, it's just almost unbelievable. But in this day and age, nothing's really unbelievable as, as Heidi knows too, like in Canada here, we've seen it all the things, pipelines can get shut down for any reason. You can spend $10 billion and it can get shut down by three people that decide they don't want it. So, or delayed anyways. Well, that's exactly it as well. Is another thing that you know Terry and I discuss quite often is if we were to shut down all this infrastructure, what would change internationally? There's still an incredibly demanding um, growth for oil and gas, and that's really where the problem lies. It's not so much that you know Canada and the United States were trying to be environmentally sound, and what a lot of environmental activists will say this is a good thing because we're becoming less dependent. But quite literally, the research is completely opposite from that. We're becoming more dependent on oil and gas. And now we're just going to be leveraging and opening ourselves up to vulnerabilities to international community. And that's a huge problem for me because the international community on a democratic sense, I mean, whether you're dealing with Saudi Arabia or Russia or even Iraq or war-torn areas that don't have infrastructure or democracies that run as functionally as Canada and the United States do, in a, on a kind of a theoretical standpoint, that really is a, a really troubling factor for me. And the fact that politicians are also not getting behind um, this over, overarching argument, because when you, when you put yourself in a vulnerable position, you know, this is not going to, this is not going to help our security at all in, in North America. 
Uh, no, it's really not. And, um, you know, we talked about uh, having NOPEC, which is North America producers uh, oil. Let's get rid of uh, OPEC and let's have NAPEC, you know. And uh, I just put out an article this morning that Mexico is going to be really reliant on our uh, natural gas uh, on things. So we really need to trade with our closest partners. Um, Enbridge just got shut down on line five that had been operating for I think 40 years. They've been trying to upgrade it and the effect that that's going to have on Canada is infuriating to me from the standpoint that their Canada is going to have to import its own oil through the Panama Canal because of these idiots. I'm sorry I didn't mean to like get all worked up there but this is one of the dumbest things I have ever heard. It is really quite absurd when you start looking logistically at how things are going. And Terry and I have kind of um, on a private end, we have talked about um, exactly that. So same thing, we had a propane crisis in Quebec. And, uh, you know, Quebecers basically are saying we don't want anything to do with Alberta oil and gas and et cetera, et cetera. But yet when they have a propane shortage, the number one things that were affected were nursing homes. So mm -hmm. that's a huge thing to and think hospitals. about. You, and hospitals, exactly. You're not talking about, you know, these, you, these wealthy people scurrying around. It is the average day person, the most vulnerable in our, in our society and in our countries that rely on this. And this is something that like really irritates me on a socialist level because but when you're doing that, again, it comes down to this common sense factor that Terry often talks about in infrastructure. It's like, it's like building a pipeline or building a Trans-Canada highway. You don't see people in an uproar over a four-lane highway, a beautiful four-lane highway going across Canada. I mean, it literally is quite, it is connected to the exact same concepts. And to me, you know, when you're fighting a pipeline issue, you're fighting a national highway. And when's the last time you ever see environmentalists or people picketing outside because there's, there's better roads? Like, you don't see that. But there's no connection anymore on the leadership level, in my opinion, that's, that's connecting oil and gas to our everyday lives. And well, one, I, I, one thing that's, oh. No, go ahead, Terry. Sorry. Well, I was going to say that one, one thing that's a big issue here in North America is that we're just so... We, we have such cushy lives and we just take all this stuff for granted. It's uh, like Heidi mm -hmm. mentioned the propane shortage in Quebec. Before that happened, most people in Quebec even didn't even know that they relied on propane to that extent until the railways were blockaded by pipeline protesters and they, re they couldn't get their propane. And then they kind of went, wait, wait a minute, what's this all about? And that's, that's a North American phenomenon. In Europe, they, Europe, they have even more bigger protests and stronger uh, anti-oil and gas movement they're still building a pipeline from Russia right into Europe because they know the security of energy supply. Uh, they know what it can be like to be without it. So no matter how much greed protesting is going on out there, they're still building these infrastructure things because they have to. And in North America, it seems like we've, we, we don't even understand that yet. Germany just opened a new coal-fired power plant. Germany is the most advanced renewable country in the world. And they're just, they're clearing forest open, <laughs> yeah, so to speak. So, so there's these energy realities and, and it's, it's, that's part of the challenge of what we try and do in our podcast and what you guys try and do too, try and educate people on, this is the fuel that keeps everyone alive. Why are you trying to impede it? And it's, it, you, yeah. it makes you want to scream sometimes, but. 
Yeah, we, me and Stu, we just were on, we, we, we interviewed um, the, the Alaska people, Stu, that we, we talked to. And, and this was a company who uh, the, the air quality in Fairbanks, Alaska was absolutely horrible. And the reason was because most people were heating their homes with wood burning fires, which I thought was absolutely incredible that that was something that people were still doing and they were able to convert them to pellet fires. So I think you bring up a good point. I just don't even think these activists or people know actually how the majority of the world uses their uses petroleum product or what we would call non-renewables or fossil fuels. I don't they, they, I think there's a huge disconnect between what they what's going on and what they theoretically believe. Yeah, and I think part of that is urbanization. The more people, uh, if you're a second or third generation inner city person, you don't know and you don't care about that stuff. I get attacked on social media by people from one guy from Toronto telling me that they don't need natural gas in winter anymore because they have renewables and nuclear and it's you, you don't even know what you're talking about, um, but he's some, he's his opinion's good as anybody else. And these people amplify their opinion and they have a lot of followers and it's just ignorance that they propagate. And, and to, so the challenge is not just to educate people, but to break through that wall of animosity first. We have, we have two jobs to do so. Yeah, and also, and to make sure that we're doing it at a quicker pace. I think the urgency of getting everyone together, like kind of what we're doing here, and making friends cross the borders and having better conversations with people outside of our everyday circles because we are up against a timeline because at one point we can only go down this path for so long where we're going to have huge repercussions we're already seeing them and we're raising the, the alarm and we're saying that this is a red flag this is a red flag but it's like anything how many red flags do we need before people are going to have this problem and it's going to take an energy crisis and a shortage and hopefully hopefully with good leadership we can make sure that that doesn't happen to our fellow citizens okay. um, i think that uh, sorry go, go ahead. ahead oh that's an excellent uh, point that heidi makes about energy security and people not realizing this there's a story that i've written about a couple of times in uh, january 2019 the governor of Rhode Island um, declared a state of emergency because there's a natural gas shortage during a cold spell. And uh, she, she went on TV, she went on social media, she said, like, this is a crisis. We're cutting, there's not enough gas in the system. Demand is too high. We can't get more supply in. And we're shutting in 7,000 customers. And if you have space, we want you to take people in because people could die tonight. And this went for institutions. And it was a plea to the state um, and that's what happened. That's what can happen. They, they avoided a disaster. They skated through the weather warmed up and it was all okay. And then they forget all about it. But, but we're that close to having like a real, a real disaster, like Heidi's saying, in, in, in a winter crunch where you have a cold snap. And if you want to limit pipeline infrastructure, it, it's going to work 99% of the time. You'll get away with it. But the 1% it doesn't, the price could be ridiculously high. You know, when you you sit back and think about some of these kids that have been living in their basement, uh, eating uh, macaroni and cheese and not having to work for a living, um, all of a sudden they're coming out and being making decisions and everything else. Uh, <laughs> sorry, some of these guys are just not heads. And I mean, if you want to take uh, even Governor Cuomo up in uh, New York, he will. He banned fracking in New York and buying anything fracked. So then he starts importing natural gas from Russia, LNG from Russia out of the, the Arctic. I'm sitting here kind of going, I'm sorry. That's about the dumbest thing I've heard in a long time. 
and uh, what are your guys, uh, Terry and, and Heidi and Michael, one of our biggest things is how do we educate the stupid? And I, I'm sorry for saying that, but they're in their own mind, they're not gonna listen to us. What are your thoughts on how we get through to them? I'm a little more tough than, I mean, sometimes fear is the biggest motivator. I mean, Mary, maybe it's something like what Terry mentioned that maybe we need to see a small gas squeeze where the infrastructure quite possibly was the problem. I mean, maybe, I mean, and maybe that's not, you know, necessarily the most politically correct answer, but sometimes fear can be a pretty good motivator for people. Well, I, I think it might have to take something like that. And one of the reasons I brought up Europe was, uh, um, you can go find this online, but a few years ago, uh, Putin cut off the supplies of natural gas to um, to the Ukraine, I think, and, and part, in, in effect, partly to Europe in the dead of winter in January. He shut the mm -hmm. top off, and that got people's attention really quickly. And that's why other that's why a lot of LNG infrastructure was built uh, in in Europe was to to they said we, we okay we get it now we can't risk this reliance here. We have a market-based economy. You, you, we, I hear people every day saying, if only we could shut in pipelines for a week, that would teach people. We don't work that way here. We have a market economy. We keep, we keep things going to the best of our abilities. When a pipeline ruptures, we get in there and we fix it as quick as we can and we find out why and we make it better for next time. And that's, that's in a sense, that's shooting ourselves in the foot because we're just making ourselves even more reliable, and, and, which is a great thing. But it just means people take us for granted even more. They just don't, they don't, uh, they, they don't make that connection. And, and as long as we keep doing such a good job of providing that fuel reliably, it just becomes harder to get them to listen, ironically. Well, we have this uh, mayor up in Fort St. John, actually, Lori Ackerman. She said exactly that a couple of years ago and she made oh. um, pretty viral across Canada. Was it two, a couple of years ago now, Terry? I think Where so, yeah, that she was in the news, yeah. She, turned, she said to um, all the Canadians, she's like, we're just going to turn the taps off. <laughs> and yeah, she's, she's like, one of the biggest gas producing regions, yeah. Yeah, she's a great, uh, she's a powerhouse for sure. But I mean, yeah. I think the biggest thing is, is that, you know, she's a, she's a local mayor. And that, to me, I, um, I'm really, really, and I told you guys this last time, is that I'm really sick of the bureaucrats running our country. It's not so much, again, that citizens disagree, but it's literally the people that we're voting in that are representing these issues. And, you know, they're supposed to be educated. They're supposed to be academics. And I know our, our former prime minister, Stephen Harper, has really um, done a huge research on this post, um, post his serving the country. And it basically his premise is that saying that liberal arts institutions and also um, universities across the country are becoming more and more uh, condensed into one way of thinking. And it's not about like exposing young kids to information. It's not about, um, you know, presenting them with calm facts and, and realistic expectations of the world, how the economy works. How, mm -hmm. And I think that's a really big um, thing that we're seeing a shift in is because we got a lot of leaders now are just either too scared to stand up, don't know to stand up or too ignorant to stand up. And we've got the very, very few that are very vocal and they end up becoming just the minority in the group. So there's a lot of work to be done, and I think there's a lot um, in my mind is really owning in on young people because young people have an eager mind, whether we like it or not, and they're meant to, in their early 20s, be a little naive and be over-optimistic and not have realistic expectations. 
Most of them haven't paid taxes yet. Most of them don't own property. Most of them don't own their cars yet. So if you look into that and say, well, let's judge them and their vote. But really what it comes down to is that they have a very adaptable mind and they're eager to learn something new. So I think that's a really good starting point. And from there, just making sure that, you know, there's an accountability system. Like we, I've said last time, we cannot have leaders standing up and saying oil is dead because it's a PR marketing campaign at this point that we're up against. Uh, you, you're, both of you mentioned something ironically that I, I have an article coming out tomorrow about that in the BOE report. I think it's tomorrow or the day after just about the, the youth of today and, and just not having to, I, I didn't get into it as much as Heidi did, although I agree completely about the viewpoints that, that, that are coming out of liberal arts schools, which are dominating everything and they're, they're, they're academic and theoretical, and, but they don't understand reality. And that's, that's not a slight against youth, but when you're, when you're younger and more, um, you can be quite idealistic, especially when you go into university, and, but you haven't dealt with the realities of actually building things and um, the, the, the hardships, I suppose. When you actually try and do something, it's a big, as Heidi would know with making her, her film, or you guys know with the website, it looks easy on paper, but then there's, there's always a million little things that, uh, that come up and it takes some expertise and, and you have to get good at it. And so when you hear young people saying, we're going to do this, we're going to change the world's energy infrastructure. It's like, yeah, you're bless your little heart, but you, you don't know what you're talking about uh, until you've actually been in the trenches. And that, that was in that article about the end of, end of infrastructure. I touched on that is that you, you don't know it until you've actually tried to build something, the challenges that are involved. The, there's everything from weather to politics to accidents to you name it. And, and every one of these, is, there's going to be a million things come up that you don't see. And the more experience you have, the more you understand this. So yeah, it, it's, um, it, we have to take back that narrative, I think, from people that don't understand what's involved in, in building things. Yeah. I want to circle back, Terry, to something, and I want to give, you know, both you and Heidi an opportunity to answer this, but kind of circle back to one thing you mentioned about how, you know, in the historically Canada has sort of been lacking infrastructure projects as it comes to the rest of the world. And as, you know, specifically the United States over the past six months, it feels like it's flipped, you know, you know, all of the, the pipeline stuff that you mentioned specifically in your article, they're happening in the United States. And, and even, you know, Trudeau, you know, your guys' president is actually rolling out and then continuing on with some pipeline projects. So, I mean, do you have any advice for us down here on how we should be handling this? Because um, it, it's, you know, you guys have been living in this for, is there any advice that, we, that, that you guys can have for us as we maybe move forward? Well, if you look around, you see I'm in an underground bunker here. So that's my first Great. <laughs> Just what I wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'll let Heidi go first on that because I don't know if I have anything. <laughs> um, I would say, yeah. I mean, I think the difference is, is that we have been up against environmental groups and uh, quite disorganized for some time. And really, it wasn't until about, I would say, arguably, maybe around five years ago that we started to become more collective together. Because there is power in numbers, and the one thing that you need to know is that even if you disagree with your fellow neighbor, that creating friends and creating connections with other industries and other parts of the country is going to be the most important thing. So, for instance, like, it's no longer okay to just be complacent. It's no longer okay to just sit back and you know, not reach out and have a conversation with maybe a farmer or maybe someone that is working on the pipeline or something like this. And I've, one thing I've noticed about Albertans is you'd be hard pressed to not find Albertan out here that is an environment, is a huge advocate for oil and gas. I mean, 
pretty much everyone in the industry can give you facts, can give you a head count, can tell you what's going on in politics. They can tell you every detail because they have to be involved now and it forces us to be involved every day. So I think moving forward, um, again, like these kind of um, relationships and these kind of um, conversations are the way forward because that makes us makes us more collective cross-border and and cross-provincially and in your case it would be across state lines you know heidi in your movie uh stranded nation one of the things that i just struck me uh right out uh was the fact that canada has one of the best uh social governments and uh taking care of the environment and production through regulations and i think michael to your point that that's something that we need to learn how to do is do proper regulations and maybe that's one of the ways that we can help um, become more canadian like i guess is the way to phrase that surrender into the mob is what is what it just seems like to me <laughs> Hopefully not. We'll, we'll, we'll go down swinging if we do. Exactly. I'm starting to build my bunker now. That's what it sounds like. That's probably the best <laughs> advice I've heard all week. Oh, well, I, I, there's one thing that I wrote about in my book is that I don't think the, um, and this is why Heidi is so uh, important to me anyways in this conversation is because she thinks outside the boundaries of communication, who you have to talk to and, and why. And I think the oil and gas industry has done a really bad job of speaking to the public forever. And, and I wrote a lot about this in the book is that um, forever that uh, the oil and gas industry was not an arm of governments, but it was it worked in concert with governments around the world. Governments wanted oil and gas developed and they invited industry in and they said, here's a concession. And if you have any problems, we'll deal with them for you. And that's not that was there's good and bad to that. Of course, historically, there's colonial type activity and, and you can't you can't say that all of that was good stuff. But that's how it worked. Um, governments dealt with oil and gas industries. When Trump got in, he put in Rex Tillerson as a secretary of state, who, who was the head, former head of ExxonMobil. Rex Tillerson had more experience with the international heads of state than Trump did. So that, that's kind of telling about how, how the oil and gas industry used to work. It dealt with governments. Now, all of a sudden, we have to deal with mm -hmm. the public. And we're like, well, every, it's obvious. Everyone's going to figure it out. We're kind of an engineering run industry. But it doesn't work that way. And, and when we do podcasts, Heidi's, Heidi's always insisted, and, and correctly so, that we have to be speaking to people in our instance, like what we, the way we start out across the country. We want to speak to people in the Maritimes and Quebec and Ontario and other parts of the country that aren't in it. And to speak internationally like this with you guys, it's fantastic. Because like, like Heidi just said, that, that we, this should be a collaborative voice. And there, absolutely, there are things we can do better. We have to get rid of our orphan well program problems. And uh, we know you have the same issue down there. There's a lot of wells that, that were walked away from a long time ago and, and we have to deal with it. And that's just, that's a black guy, but the, the, our business isn't built on quitters. We'll find a way to do it. But we, you can't do it when you're in an underground bunker. <laughs> you, like you have to be out, you have to have incentives and you have to, you, ha you have to have a, a framework where you can go ahead rather than just fighting for your life, so. I'm calling off construction, I guess. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be ready for the zombie apocalypse. I don't know. About but, yeah, be ready to defend yourself on the zombie apocalypse. Um, but when you sit back and think, all these kids were um, 
influenced by college. You know, the uh, liberal folks were teaching the kids and now all of a sudden these kids, uh, Terry, you brought that up earlier. They had not worked. They don't, you know, haven't been out in the workforce. Now that COVID has really changed how maybe our college education is going to be going forward, do you think that we have an opportunity to teach these kids without having such a big club from the anti-fossil folks? Uh, I, I think so, and I'll jump in before Heidi here, but I, I think that's true. Um, and the story that I wrote tomorrow, the analogy that's going out tomorrow, um, so a lot of people, you, the younger two here won't remember the hippie generation, and I don't really remember it either, but there was, it, was, it felt similar from what I remember growing up was there's these, there's these uh, hordes of university educated youth that wanted to tear down the system and they were fighting against the establishment and, and whatever else. And they're really counterculture and they were just fed, fed up with everything. It wasn't climate, they wanted other change. Um, and they became the boomers of today. And now the youth of today are laughing at the boomers and, and making jokes about them and whatnot. And the, the protesters of today are gonna turn into the same thing. There was a great uh, meme on the web the other day, it was about an. It was a. It was actually BBC comedy of all things from Britain, but it was about a group of overly woke people, and they're all complaining about all of these um, things that overly woke people do. About well, you hurt my feelings for this and everything. And the instructor said, "Well, it, okay. Well, you're worrying about this now, but you have to remember that it, by the time you hit your 30s, you're going to be so far right wing, you won't even remember this." And I think that's a bit of a progression when people. You don't necessarily turn ultra right wing, but when you have to start dealing with mortgages and you're 10 years into your career and you're, or you're starting to worry about retirement or you're getting to middle age, your, your mindset shifts. You think, well, I got to worry about, I, wor I worry about the economy. I worry about the world still running. I worry about different things. And there's a lot more realism. You get a lot more grounded as you get experience and, and young people can laugh at that if they want. But like Heidi said, they're flexible of mind. And I don't think that they, all of them are necessarily um, blown away and convinced by all of that rhetoric. I, I remember when I, my first year university, I started off in education. I thought I wanted to be a teacher for about two months. And, and the, the professor, the first professor I had in university was an education professor. And he, he spent, it was a full year course from September through May. The first half of the year up until Christmas, he devoted to Marxism. And he, he, he went up and down as, he wanted to ingrain in this that Marxism was the most important thing to understand with respect to education of kids. And I fought that guy tooth and nail, and I don't know how I passed his class because he didn't like me and I didn't like him, but, but that, that was the way it went. And um, I, I, a lot of kids just didn't pay attention to it. And they thought it was just a bunch of talk, and I'm sure some people absorbed it. But I, I think, like Heidi said, young people aren't dumb, and they, they can see through a lot of that. A lot of them the ones that capture the, the news and we see them out on the streets and whatever else, that's a pretty small slice of the population. They just make the noise and they know how social media works. And they know how to maximize it. And I think in any, any random sampling of the population, you're going to have a sampling of jerks. You're going to have a sampling of great people. You're going to have a sampling of those people. And it's just some get the mic for a while and, and then they go away. So uh, I, I do think that there's hope for sure. I think that's really well said because I mean, it's funny because my whole background, my first degree is in sociology, then my second degree is in, is in social work. So like, I was incredibly anti-oil and gas, as my movie says, but 
people don't really understand what level of of care I had for socialism and for for community development programs. I still have a huge care for community development programs, but what it really comes down to is that I learned where the funding was coming from, and I learned that in order to fund a, a local homeless shelter, in order to have lots of clothing, in order to have lots of things, it does benefit when you have companies contributing to this um, to this program and it keeps it running on a more sustainable level. So when I started to kind of get more exposure to that out here in Alberta, I realized, wow, this can, it, this can be really beneficial to everybody. And that really is the concept that needs to come down. And I do believe that there is a huge opportunity to um, really form those, those relationships. I don't even like to say like those conversions, but I mean, I'm a perfect example of, I was starting off in my early 20s, finished my degrees, I had to start paying off my loans. I had to start working. I had bought my condo here in Calgary. And all that manifested into, okay, well, I need a stable job now. I need things to continue on. I can't just afford to lose my job and be okay. You know, my parents can't help me out with this financially. I can't be relying on them for this. So that is a huge shift. And I agree with you that what Terry said is that the 30s is really your awakening of coming into adulthood, you know, it sounds kind of ironic to say that, but you do get a dose of where your, what income taxes are. You, you're no longer getting money back from the government. Income taxes are not a fun time of year. <laughs> so these are, these are shifts that um, are, are, are normal. And I don't think that this is just our times. I mean, every single decade, and I would argue every single generation has an issue, a social issue that is prominent. And ours happens to be right now um, environmentalism. That's that's the ageism of what we're living in, and coming up with correct solutions is always going to benefit us long term. Well, you know, uh, Heidi, well said, and and Terry, uh, I think coming out of this discussion, um, learning how to educate people that you're having a discussion with is what I need to do better. Uh, instead of talking to a guy and, and have him complain about fossil fuels and I point to his iPhone and say, do you like your iPhone there, guy? And, you know, just slap <laughs> him in the head. So <laughs> I, I'm thinking of that you do need to have a better sense of a way to educate people. So, yeah. Uh, well, one of the challenges is to, um, to bring the conversation back to reality a bit. And I've I, I've, I realized that it's not very long ago, and I slapped myself for not a long time ago, but we've gotten in the habit of attacking, or not attacking, counterattacking, I suppose, what we call environmentalists. And we shouldn't be attacking anyone that's a true environmentalist. And Heidi mentioned that before. The, the, the Alberta and the oil patch and your oil patch is full of environmentalists, and we care about the environment. The, I think that the difference is that we, we, we can see through that window where we're trying to keep 7 billion people alive. And that's our job and you know, we do get rewarded for it. But that, that's, that's the task at hand. How do you do that? And how do you minimize the footprint of doing that? And we can see both sides of that. And we can say, yeah, we need to reduce our environmental footprint, but you have to realize the, the environmental cost of keeping all these people alive. It's not free. You don't do it with no footprint. So how do you minimize the footprint? And I think that's a uh, if, you, if the conversation was framed that way, we would have the whole oil and gas sector on board 
and saying, we, we get that, we understand this is an efficiency problem. This is a, a habitat problem. This is, but, but it's, it's become political and emotional. And, and, and we're, now we find ourselves calling people out for being an environmentalist when we don't mean that because we're not against environmentalists. We're not against true environmental, environmentalists. We're against political activists who are using the environment as a tool to do something. And, and it seems like a, a small distinction, but I think that let's try and do is to try and flag people attention to the fact that, well, if you want 7 billion people to live, and maybe that's the starting question, do you want them to live? And assuming you do, um, how do you do that? Because there's a huge cost to the environment. The, the iPhones don't fall out of trees. They come up out of the ground from everywhere. So, yeah. I like that. I'm going to have to uh, use that one. It's the name of the, it's going to be the name of the article, Stu. iPhones don't grow on trees. Yes. Right, coming up the name of the landing page we're going to spin up. You know what, guys? This was absolutely a wonderful discussion. Uh, Heidi and Terry, thank you very much for your time today. We just really appreciate you. And, and, um, we love our Canadian um, uh, friendship and neighbors and and all that. So thank you for your time today. And uh, Michael, I sure appreciate your production today. So thank you very much. Thanks for having Thank us. you guys. Always so it's always such a pleasure. And exactly what you said, it is so nice to collaborate with our fellow Americans. Yes, exactly. I'm telling you guys, if you enjoyed this is half as much as i did i think you are going to love it we appreciate you guys listening to this you can check out all of the energy 360 expert network podcasts on itunes spotify youtube wherever you get your podcasts you should also check out the energy or the 360 digital closing podcast which is hosted by me the best place for all of your energy market leadership you should also go to the oil and gas conference.com so you can register for the best oil and gas conference it's all digital this year so you guys are going to be able to watch from your couch guys also check out all of the information uh for this uh stuff available at the world's greatest website oilandgas360.com until next time guys we'll see you then